You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. People die in very strange ways some of the time. And I know this because I just spoke to Barbara Butcher, who just published the book, What the Dead Know, learning about life as a New York City death investigator. Here she is, Barbara Butcher. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Barbara, have you ever seen a ghost in the 5,300 dead bodies that you've investigated? No, because, no, I haven't. I've seen ghosts in my own realm, my own personal realm, but never a dead body, um, you know, on scene. And you would think that there would be some, because supposedly they, they only haunt the death location if they died badly and with a great emotional upheaval. And almost 100% of the of the dead bodies you've seen died in an unpleasant way. Well, a, ver a very large number of them, yes. A very large number of them. So who knows? I mean, the ghosts may have been watching me while I did my examination and my work. 
I hadn't thought about that. But wait, you said something very interesting at first. You said you've seen ghosts in your personal ROM, which is an interesting way to put it, your personal ROM. I'll leave that aside for a second, <laughs> but what what ghosts have you seen? Um, I was just I was just talking about how my um she would be have been my great aunt and my great uncle were arguing and fighting up on a stair landing in my great grandmother's home. And he was very jealous and he thought that she was running off with somebody, another man. So he shot her and stuffed her body behind a trunk. Then he shot himself out on the stair landing. So, you know, somebody heard the shot, came running up and found him dead. They didn't find her immediately. It was because the body was stuffed behind the trunk and they searched and they said, oh, she must have run off with that other man. When they eventually found her, oh, huge uproar. Now there's two people dead and they had a little baby that died very shortly afterwards. They said mm -hmm. it died of heartbreak back then. Okay, so now here I am, a kid playing in the same area and every time we go up those stairs to the back room, there's a cold spot on the landing, the stair landing. And it feels creepy. It makes the pit of your stomach go bad. Then we'd run through it, ee, whatever that was. When my mother was a little girl, she slept in the room upstairs next to that landing. And she'd hear people fighting and crying from a long way off. And she thought nothing of it till she got older. She mentioned it to my great grandmother. And she said, oh, honey, that's the one of you aunt. Uh, she died, you know, her husband, he killed her. Then he killed himself. Eh? I mean, can you imagine that the pain and the anger to lead to like, I mean, you probably can't imagine because you've seen it a lot of times, but just, I always wonder about these suicide murders, mm -hmm. like you murder someone, they commit suicide. Like you have so much anger and pain, you do the deed and then you must feel so guilty or so worthless or like you can't even imagine life going on and then you kill yourself. And you don't want to get caught, I guess, too. So you kill yourself. Well, actually, that's the first chapter of my book is the, you know, about the angry suicides. Why do so many people who kill themselves go out and shoot somebody else first? That was an interesting case. The situation with your great grandmother, and great grandfather, that was like very intensely personal. Yeah. Whereas in your first chapter, can you describe that one, the, the angry suicide? Sure. That was... Um... Uh, a case I went to where they, you know, the police called and said, oh, you've got a suicide. A guy hanged himself in the uh, 2-8 precinct or wherever it was. And um, when I got there, it was pitch dark, absolutely pitch dark. Uh, so I, I know I asked the cop, what's up? He goes, I don't know. I guess the guy didn't pay his electrical bill, but there's no lights here at all. Now, I was a little um, out of sorts that night because... I had cut a tendon in my hand with a saw, had some surgery. Now my arm was in a cast from my hand to my elbow, and I wasn't getting around too well. So I was grumpy, in pain, and not functioning at my best. So I'm pissed off that I got to go in there and look around with a flashlight to find anything. And there's not much to be said, except that this is an extraordinarily lonely apartment. It's a guy who's probably just sat in his apartment by himself for years, never did much of anything. But there he is hanging in a, in a doorway from an overhead pipe. And, uh, you know, with the flashlight, I'm scanning him. I don't see much un uh, that's unusual. There's, there's things we look for. Um, for instance, if, if you were to strangle a person with like a ligature or with your hands and then string them up to make it look like a, a, 
a suicide, I'd know about it because there are certain signs we look for. Anyway, um, I had, we used Polaroid cameras back then. I think this was back in 93, 92. And the flash is going off and I'm just taking all the pictures top to bottom. And I say, yeah, all right, this looks like a suicide. No big deal. Let's go home. Well, no big deal for me. It certainly was for the guy. Now, before I leave, I go to cut him down. Normally, I stand up on a stool or something, hold on to the ligature so that he doesn't crash to the floor, and I cut above the knot with my knife. And I realize, oh, I can't do that. My hand's in a cast. And there's nobody else around. My driver is an older fellow. And the cop, eh, they got union rules, so I'm not going to ask him. So I figured, oh, wait, I'll just call the office. When the morgue people get here, the morgue wagon drivers, I'll ask them to cut the guy down, let him down easy, and take him away. So off I go back to the office, and I'm preparing to write my report about the case. And, of course, I'm reviewing and labeling the photographs. And I come upon one photograph where I notice, oh, this is interesting. What is this plugged into the wall? It's an orange uh, extension cord, the kind you use for um, for outdoors, heavy duty. Hmm, where? Wait, wait a second now. What that's, what's that doing there? Turns out it's around his neck. That's his ligature. That's pretty good because it won't break. It's nice and strong. But as it trails off from behind his head, it's plugged into the wall. And wait a second, what does this mean? I thought there was no electricity there. Why would it be plugged in? So I call back to the scene, and I'm thinking, oh, shit, there is electricity. This is a booby trap. And sure enough, I asked the cop. You know, he answers the phone. I said, go and screw in the light bulbs and make sure that they're dead. He screws in a light bulb. It's live. This guy set it up to make sure, to make it look as if there was no electricity in the house. Unscrewed all the bulbs, whatever. And then, plugging this in, he knew that somebody would come along to cut him down. That person, me, would be electrocuted. Maybe did. Would it be enough of an electrocution to kill you? I don't know. I've asked engineers and they say varying things. Depends on how I was grounded, if I was grounded, you know, what kind of, but either way, I would have been hurt at, yeah. at the very least. And, you know, then I started wondering, what the hell? Why do people do this? Why do people just, why not just kill yourself and be done with it? Why do you have to take someone else with you? And so I classify that as the angry suicide. And why do you think someone does that? I think the anger of being in pain, emotional pain. If you've ever experienced deep emotional pain, and I'm sure you have, it's, it's horrifying, it's devastating. And what's even more devastating is, I think if you're a very isolated person, no one reaches out to you. No one says, hey, you look, you look awful, what's going on? Or I haven't spoken to you in a while. Are you lonely? You want to hang out? No one reaches out to these isolated people because they've, they've, well, they started it. They built walls around their lives. But that doesn't stop the anger that comes from 
feeling all that pain. No one cares. So I think it's a screw you to the world. It's almost like they, it's, it's like you said, there's no one who calls them. There's no one who cares. It's almost like they want to have meaning in someone's life. Mm-hmm. And by electrocuting them as part of their suicide, they're definitely going to have meaning in someone else's life sure. for the first time. Sure, they won't be forgotten. Now, this particular guy, this case I did, he won't be forgotten because it left enough of an impression on me that I wrote a chapter of a book on it. Why did you make that the first story you tell? You have so many fascinating stories. Mm, good question. Um, like what, when you were sitting down to type, what made you type that case first? You know, what I, the, when I opened up, the, so when I started writing, the first sentence, I, I, I wanted to be talking about the people around me. Um, Miss, Mr. Wells, my driver, the, uh, the woman who works on the switchboard. Um, I just wanted to open up in a very general, like, oh, here, I'm at work, la-di-da, this is what we do. But now here's the work. I'm going to go look at a dead guy. Wow. So I opened it up that way. Just here's my workaday life, and um, something weird happened. So the intention was not to talk about angry suicides right from the from the top, but just to talk about, oh, here's how my day at work goes. But look how it turns. And the I, I guess the point in that story is that I was bitching and moaning about having my hand in a cast. You know, it was ruining everything. Um, And it hurt like hell. So if I hadn't had my hand in a cast, I would have cut through that wire. Maybe I would have been killed. Maybe I just would have been badly hurt. But regardless, it just started me thinking. So that's how that, that chapter started out as the first one talking about my everyday job and then, oh, look at this. It, you know, because of your job, it's almost impossible to start that book in a bad way. <laughs> it's true. Because you could just start, you could just put yourself in the middle of any of the hundreds or thousands of stories you've been involved with and just start typing and that's going to be a riveting story. And it's because a, I guess we're just fascinated. You know, I've never seen a dead body, for instance. So we're just fascinated by someone whose job it is to investigate these things. And of course, there's TV shows that, you know, glorify it and whatever. And every story, like you say, has a lot of pain in it for it to end up as it mm-hmm. did. And even if it wasn't foul play, it, like there was the one story you told, you know, two drunk people and they wake up and one of them's dead. And obviously, and the other guy has a broken Mm. bottle. So obviously the other guy did it. But you believed him that he said he just couldn't remember what happened. Like what happened there? Well, um, as an alcoholic, I can tell you all about blackout drunk. Uh, When you literally remember nothing of what happened to you or what you did. I've had friends, alcoholics, who um, were out at a, a club one night and woke up in Paris or Bermuda, two friends, one in Paris, one in Bermuda. I mean, just woke up and said, oh my God, where am I? And they remembered nothing of how they got there. So um, 
Yeah, I, I'm very familiar with being a blackout drunk. And uh, I think it's the second chapter where I describe my last night of drinking. Um, I actually don't remember any of that night. The only reason I was able to write it is because of the friends who were with me and told me what happened. I don't remember any of that stuff. When you're blackout drunk, do they think you're blackout no. drunk? No. They, I'm talking, I'm, you know, walking, I'm doing everything normally. Well, as normal as you can be when you're smashed out of your face. But, you know, it just seems like, oh, she's a drunk, there you go. But they don't know that I have no idea what's going on. So when this man, and that case really bothered me a lot because of the fact that the guy, the dead guy, was covered in the blanket that I had given him as a Christmas present, one that, that season when I went around giving out blankets to homeless guys. And uh, so that bothered me a lot. And what bothered me even more was that his best friend, who sat with him, drank with him, lived with him, as much as you can call that living, under the exit ramp on the FDR, he killed his friend and had no idea what happened. None. And to be told by the police, oh, you just killed your best friend. You slashed his face. You slashed, slashed his throat. And he doesn't remember it. That's pretty awful. And is that then, like, it's hard to classify that. Is that then considered manslaughter? Um, yeah, probably. You know, the, the prosecutors would, would have a field day with that. Um, maybe second or third degree murder because it was no prior intent. It was just an argument over the bottle. Do you think he's out of jail now? I think he's dead now the way he was drinking. Who knows? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
than you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So you were, you were really living like the hard life. And I don't mean like that you had a hard life, but you were making your <laughs> life hard by, by drinking, the partying. You were, you were kind of going in and out of goals and then failing them and, and trying to move forward, but two steps forward, three steps back because of the mm -hmm. alcohol. Like what, and you describe this in, in the book, but I want to hear you talk about it. Like what, what, what changed things for you? Um... I guess truly hitting bottom, and that's that's always the way that people get sober, um, is when enough is enough. I had been so sick 
for so long and my life had sunk to the point of where I was working off the books part-time in a button store, um, you know, just uh, uh, people would come in and say, excuse me, my dear, but I must have a very, very important button for my mink coat. It must be an important statement button. Yes, ma'am, of course, we have many such wonderful buttons. Let me see what I can get for you. Oh, yes, and please, please, make sure it's an important button. Oh, for Christ's sake. You know? <laughs> Before that, I had been a hospital administrator responsible for health care in the South Bronx, you know, working with politicians there, getting clinics opened, getting things for people, helping people. But I drank my way right out of that. What does that mean? Like, did you just not show up for work one day? No, or? lots of days. What does lots it mean? of days. I sat in my office with a hangover, with the door closed. So I didn't go to meetings. I didn't speak to people. I was snappish to my secretary. And my, I do all this without yeah, thinking. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, and I just, I wasn't working effectively. I wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. Uh, and I was miserable over some stupid relationship. So, you know, it was, like, it was a combination of, of, of misery factors. I was a miserable bitch to be around. And eventually my boss just called me in and said, I don't know what the hell's wrong with you. I said, nothing. What are you talking about? Nothing's wrong with me. Well, you're not the person I knew two years ago. So I left, uh, or he he got me out. Um, he fired me. And there I am working in a button store, and I'm drinking every night cheap wine, the Concha Itoro, five ninety nine the half gallon. Um, a delicious wine, though, by the way. Uh, I've seen it at many death scenes. Um, it is the, the, really? the drug of choice for the poverty-stricken alcoholic, which I was at the time. So I'm working in a button store. My master's degree is for nothing. All the studying I did, all the, the career work I did, it's all for nothing. Because I'm sitting here now, oh, and I live in a, in a studio apartment that is um, probably 170 square feet. It was tiny, no kitchen wow. to speak of, just a toilet and a place to put a bed. And so I hit, I had really hit bottom. I was nobody. I did nothing except drink and eat fried chicken from a Chinese restaurant every night. And were you telling yourself, eventually this will stop when good things happen to me or... Did, did did you think, oh, I'm, I'm heading to someplace bad? I don't think I thought at all, quite frankly. I, I don't think I had a thought in my head. I, you know, wait, I'm going to take that back. There's a little arrogance there, the arrogance of the alcoholic, in thinking that I'm a deep person. I'm a thinking person. I'm a, I'm a sensitive soul. <laughs> mm. Oh, I love to laugh at that. And, and I drink to numb the pain of existence or some, you know, you can make it up. It's, it's all the same. It's a, but I kind of believe that it's kind of an escapism, but escape from what a job, a relationship, a life, a home, all those things. Sure. No responsibility sitting there paying 120 bucks a month for an apartment, work part time and watch TV the rest of the time or go out with and have affairs. So that was a, a useless life. And that was the turning point of my life, really. The, 
that morning when I woke up and I said, oh my God, enough is enough. I'm really sick. So thank God. And, and then what? Then I got sober, went to an AA meeting and then another one and another one, and another one. And they take very good care of you in AA. They really care. They stay sober by getting other people sober. And um, it was wonderful. I discovered a whole new life. And, you know, I'm not saying that I was an AA fanatic, but I discovered a whole new me after I sort of detoxed when all the alcohol watched, washed out of me. I sort of remembered that I was um, relatively smart, that I had a good education, and that I had good ideas. I never did anything about them, but I had them. And then you said, I'm going to cut up dead people. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, actually, I'm giving away the whole book here, but... Never worry about giving up the whole book because there are so many great stories that will just... I feel I felt like I was watching 10 thriller <laughs> movies in a row. Uh, so you, there's no way you can give away the book. Okay. So it's okay if you tell stories. I think the common mistake people have on podcasts is they think, oh, people listen to this podcast, they're not going to buy the book. It's the exact opposite. You go on the podcast so people ah, buy the book. Good. Okay. Well, um, in AA, you get, uh, because it is a disease, alcoholism, you, you get certain benefits. In New York State, they have something called um, EPRA, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. They teach you how to work, how to be a working person. And my sponsor told me to go. So I said, all right, what the hell, I'll go. Because you do what you're told in, LA, in uh, AA. And um, so I, sorry, I joined that program. And they did all those tests, uh, Minnesota multiphasic personality preferential, blah, 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 to see what kind of work would be best for me. What was my personality type? And eventually the guy, my counselor, after a few weeks said, well, we've got the results and you should either be a poultry veterinarian or a coroner. I said, poultry? Why What? what? Well, okay, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, why, why poultry? He said, well, you know, when you were working as a PA in surgery, physician assistant, you got too attached to your patients. When they didn't get better, when they died, really bothered you. And it's, you got became emotionally bereft. So if you worked with puppies and kittens, it would be the same thing. It would really affect you. But chickens, nobody cares about chickens. They have beady little eyes. They're not good pets. So I said, oh, wait a second, I'll take coroner. I said, yeah, people are already dead. You don't have to worry about them dying on you. But wouldn't you have to think about, oh, it's so sad that, I don't know, this spouse killed this other spouse and then killed herself or killed himself. Like, wouldn't that make you feel, like put yourself in that situation or do you get numb to that a little bit? No, you never go numb, but you do detach. And that is the essence of that job, is the ability to cultivate detachment. If I went into a scene where, uh, well, I saw many of children killed, murdered by their parents, and if I were to go in there and think about that poor kid looking in their mother's eyes as she raised the knife, I'd lose it. I would be completely useless. Yeah. There's no way I could do the job if I felt or thought about the things that happened to those people. 
So you draw a curtain, you detach from your emotions, and then get about the business of the job. You're working for the victim to get justice, justice for them, for their families. And um, you concentrate on that. And, and so uh, this might be a cliche to ask. I'm sure many people have asked you this, but like you, you brought up, you know, you've seen many children who have been murdered. What is like one that maybe almost affected you or affected you the most? Oh, they all affected me in some way. I just didn't realize it for years. I yeah. thought I was well detached. But over the years, over a 10-year period, it built up and up and up until I was frozen emotionally. Um, detachment, you can't do it selectively uh, unless you're really quite healthy. And I'm not. I'm a neurotic lunatic. Um, I was unable to now have feelings in my own personal life. My relationships were going to hell. I was detached from everything. But there were cases that uh, affected me so badly in the moment. I remember once going home after seeing a little, a little boy who had been murdered and his little brother who survived, a three-year-old, was hiding behind a curtain. His little bloody footprints were throughout the living room. He had walked in the blood of his parents and his brother, and now he's hiding behind a curtain. When I got home, I, I, I must have looked like white as a ghost and shocked because my partner said, oh my God, what's the matter with you? And I said, I, I don't know, but I have to get out of me. I, I can't be inside me right now. And I just ran and got in the bed and I pulled a sheet over my head. I don't know what that was supposed to do, but I didn't want to be in my own body, in my own mind at that moment. Uh, and there was nothing I could do about it. But you can never unsee what I saw. And um, that was a bad day. And, and and what happened? Like what, can you describe the, the story? Oh, sure. Um, drug dealers. It was a Dominican family, mother, father, a 17-year-old son, 12-year-old son, and then a three-year-old. Um, I believe, oh, yeah, so the 17-year-old was working for some low-level drug dealers in the neighborhood, just doing distribution, and they were looking for him. I guess he picked up too much money or he didn't turn everything into them, whatever. And when they came to the home, um, they killed the whole family. Now, what I suppose and what the detectives uh, surmised is that they probably said to the father, tell me where your son is or I'll kill your wife. And he said, I don't know. Killed her. And they said, tell me where she I'll, I'll kill your, your 12-year-old son. They killed him. And they didn't know where the baby, they didn't know the baby was there. And then finally they just killed everybody and left. That's what drug dealers do. And this is back in the early 90s, late 80s. There was 2,400 homicides every year in New York City. Imagine 2,400. Now you get 400. It's a big deal. But it was all the drug dealers killing each other. And it's very impersonal, very violent. Um, and I saw a lot of that. It was absolutely no humanity. It was just pure evil. Anybody that could kill a kid, what are you going to do? Sure. I imagine that they eventually found the 17-year-old and killed him too. Oh, and 
Why do you think there's uh, so much fewer homicides now? A um, couple of reasons. I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote something really interesting about how after uh, abortion became legal. Oh, it's, the, it's Freakonomics, chapter one of the first Freakonomics. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, there were fewer unwanted babies born into poverty. And so when that cohort reached the age of 20s, 21, or 18, whenever they would normally start killing, there weren't as many of those kids that had grown up badly. Um, and therefore, there was less crime. I have another theory, which is like the opposite of exponential growth. I, maybe the word is deponential in other words, okay, I like it, right? I like a good neologism. So let's say that Dennis is angry at Fred and Bill because they went into his territory. So Dennis goes and kills Fred and Bill, two homicides. But Fred and Bill were each going to kill at least three people in the coming weeks over various drug wars. So now we don't have those homicides because those killers are dead. So the more the drug dealers killed each other, the homicide went down, down, down. Eventually they wiped each other out. You know, that's actually a pretty good theory. I like it, right? I may publish it. <laughs> I guess because you, you would figure the next generation, like every few years, is another crop of kids that wants to be drug dealers. But if they all start getting killed mm -hmm. too... Eventually, it's got to run dry, the supply of drug dealers. Yeah. Yeah. So right. that and, you know, Rudy Giuliani would probably attribute it to uh, broken windows theory. There's, there's tons of theories, but maybe it's a little bit of each. Now, what, what's the, uh, when you first started as a medical examiner, were you kind of like shocked or you pretty much knew what to expect? Because you had already been working as a, you know, physician's assistant. You'd been in operating rooms. You'd seen people you know, at the brink of death or dying? Like, was there anything that shocked you in particular when you, when you first started? You know, um, I'm a good actress and I make it a point not to be shocked or frightened. When I was there for that informational interview the first day and I walked around and they took me to the autopsy room, saw a guy with a knife sticking at him. So, oh, I wonder if his killer was right-handed or left. I cultivate an air of detached curiosity and I did it real well. And so the guys, I, I was the only woman at the time, the guys were a little shocked by me, maybe even a little scared. Damn, nothing seems to bother her. It's like an ice queen over there. But then in my training, uh, I was supposed to watch a couple of autopsies, learn the, uh, the procedures. And I was with this woman, uh, Dr. Jackie Lee. She was doing the autopsy of an eight-year-old girl who had been raped and smothered and thrown in a garbage dump. Um, I think the Daily News or the Post called her Angel in Hell. It was, a big, it was a big story. And we're doing this autopsy, and I was uh, consumed with horror. I was awestruck by how much evil it took to do this deed. And I said to to Jackie, what? How do you do this every day? How, you know, how do you live seeing this and knowing this? And she said, "When you leave here, surround yourself with things of beauty, love, good food, music, art, the nature, everything. Just do it every single day. Do something creative. Do something wonderful." Well, 
I tried, and I think it helped. I got a little house in the country eventually, up in the Catskills, and so I had grass and leaves and trees and a cat and a dog, and it was good. I think that helped me. But you wouldn't go back to that every day, no. though? What would you do every no, day? No, every day. Um, that's a good question, since I wasn't drinking, and I was often tempted, believe me. I think... I think going to AA meetings, and I had a nice social life there too. It was fun people. Um, I think having a decent social life helped me. And I did write yeah. at the time. I journaled. I wrote little stories. None of them were any good, but who cares? Writing was something creative for me. So that helped. Eventually, though, it didn't work anymore. Did they ever find out who uh, raped and killed that girl? Oh, sure. He practically confessed. In a very self-righteous way, he told police, well, I went and picked up this woman in a bar. We were having a good time, and I gave her $50 to go get us some cocaine so we could party some more. And she took the money, and she left. So I went to her house, and uh, she wasn't there, but her daughter was there. So I took her daughter. And he said this with such self-justification. like, well, of course I took her daughter. She took my $50. Yeah. And that really knocked me for a loop. I thought, wow, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. But there is that kind of casual evil out there, isn't there? And, you know, I have a question about, I mean, you've, you've dealt with a lot of suicides. Would you say, obviously, there's more suicides than homicides? Or what, what's the statistics on that? Hmm. It's very hard to get track of. Suicide statistics, actually. It kind of is because they're always a few years behind. Um, but interestingly, you know, New York State has the lowest suicide rate in the country. And uh, a, a doctoral student was doing a thesis on that and came and interviewed me. And he asked, why do you think that is? Why does New York have such a low suicide rate? I said, Greek diners. We have Greek diners in the city, on Long Island, all around. They're open 24 hours a day. You can always go in in the middle of the night if you wake up and you're like, oh, shit, I want to die, I want to die. Now you can go out to the diner and see people for a few minutes. You can have a cup of coffee. You don't have to eat alone every day. You can go in the diner and be around people. You can talk to the guy behind the counter. You think that really is it? You think it's, I don't know. it's just that you could find companionship? Because New York is also, you know, when I moved to New York originally, uh, it's like 1994, it, it struck me that it's, you know, it's the cliche of there's millions of people, but there's no one to talk to. That's right. New York is a town for people exactly like me who want to be surrounded with lots and lots of people, but don't want to have anything to do with them. It's the perfect yeah. town for the the introvert um, you know, it's like my childhood. I'm the oldest of nine kids. I was surrounded by people and I didn't want anything to do with any of them. So, you know, it, it's, it's New York is a natural for people like that, right? But um, yeah. I think the suicide rate, it's probably more because of our strict gun laws. There are fewer suicides here. That's what the postdoc fellow thought anyway.
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When someone commits suicide, a lot of it is hanging from your first chapter to Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. They all seem to hang themselves. This seems to be like a really, and I don't know if I'm getting too much into particulars here, but it seems like a really stupid way to kill yourself. Like it's guaranteed to be enormously painful. Not at all. In fact, exactly the opposite. It's interesting. Don't you like, first you break your neck, so you're just hanging there conscious with a broken neck until you suffocate. Nope, not at all. It's really interesting. Here's the physiology of it. Um, To die by strangulation or hanging or ligature, there's three mechanisms. One is cutting off the airway. So when when a man strangles a woman and presses his thumbs into her larynx, it cuts off the airway, and that hurts. That's really an awful, painful way to die. Your brain is screaming for for oxygen. And it's awful. Another way is to block off the carotid arteries so that blood doesn't go into your head. Keeps coming out through the veins, but you block the carotids, no brain, uh, no blood to the brain. You black out mm, within a fairly short time. It it is an oxygen deprivation situation and it is very painful, yes. But then there's the fun way. And that is only blocking the jugular veins. So if you were to put a soft ligature, let's say a, a, a belt or a tie around your neck and just lean into it, there's just enough pressure to stop the jugular veins, to occlude them. So now you can still breathe. The blood can still go through the arteries into your head, but it can't come out. So you black out very slowly and it feels great. All kinds of endorphins and weird chemicals are, are released from this, this oxygen, this, this state, oxygen deprivation state, and you black out and it feels really good. Now, how do we know this? Because people do it for fun. They do it during masturbation. It's called they. I should, t- I should say men do it during <laughs> masturbation because women aren't usually that stupid. However, there are plenty of women who do it. So what they do is during the acts of self-pleasure, they'll put a soft ligature, like a, a sanitary pad, or, you know, on a, on a rope or a, um, a soft belt from a dress. And they'll just lean into it enough, even kneeling on the floor. Remember Mick Jagger's girlfriend? That's how she no. committed suicide. Uh, Loren something. Anyway, 
once you block those jugular veins, you black out slowly and it's very pleasurable. Now, when a person does this during masturbation, they have a, a safety release, and that is you tie one end of the ligature to your wrist so that when you eventually pass out, your wrist drops and opens the ligature. Does it always work? No. And so by plain, then, I guess you're unconscious. You're so unconscious. You don't, feel it. you don't feel it, and you die in flagrante delicto. Um, and eventually, I will come to your home. One, I will come to the home and see this person, you know, naked and um, perhaps having some pornography there or things like that. And cops will say, oh, look, this guy committed suicide. No, he didn't. He was having fun. He was playing bad boy games and he died. Uh, how often have you seen this? Oh, tons, tons and tons. There's a whole chapter in the book on this. So, so it's like a common thing. Yes, very common. Very common. And 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 similar. What about like rough sex deaths? Mm. I guess the most famous is that one uh, Jennifer Levin and uh, Robert Robert Chambers. Robert Chambers. Yeah, uh, he says it was you know rough sex, and um, he strangled her uh, to the point where she died. Um, he wasn't believable, um, but plenty of people do. Uh, strangle each other during sex for that very reason of, of occluding the jugular vein so that you get that rush. And you why can, wasn't he believable? Um, I, I think you. the violence done to her body, the, the, the marks on her neck, the, you know, the scratches, they probably had scratches on him, indicated that you know, she was fighting for her life. So, you, so maybe they got into an argument? Like, well, what's the theory? Like maybe they got into an argument or... Mm. Um, he said that she, uh, I believe he said that she squeezed his genitals and it made him go into a rage. Um, who knows? Uh, who knows? Man, it's just, a, there's so much like just weirdness out there or weird's the wrong word. Like most <laughs> no, like weird. evil. Yeah, well, there's evil. There's, there's strange, there are strange things, but you know, there's, there's plenty of happy things too. There's people who are heroic and, and try to save others and die that way. You know, there's, well, no, that's not happy at all, is it? That's tragic. <laughs> Jeez, I'm now, really getting what are some down cases here, where, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to depress you. No. Uh, no. But uh, what are some cases where, because of your examining, you helped solve the case? Oh, sure. Plenty of them. Um, it's not the job of the medical examiner or the medical legal death investigator to solve the case, but rather to contribute the evidence and the interpretation and the opinion that helps, you know, direct the investigation of the police and support it and uh, help them prove what, what they believe to be so. So there were plenty of times where I found something that could either prove or disprove a case. And one of my favorites is um, I was called to a tenement building. On the first floor, there was a guy laying dead on the ground at the bottom of the staircase with a bullet hole in his head. And all around him, up and down the whole hallway, were shell casings of 22 rifle, of a 22 or handgun or rifle. And I was looking at the guy, and it, the, the, the bullet wound was a little funny. It didn't have the typical ring abrasion 
where the bullet enters, at least like a little abrasion as it goes in. Um, it didn't have the perfect concentric formation that it should. And I'm looking around, and the staircase right across from it is a wall with a corner, like this, a sharp corner. And it's got that stone coping on it or molding. And it comes to a very sharp point. So I'm smelling the guy, too, and he stinks of alcohol. So I realized, wait a second, I don't think this guy was shot. I think he was drunk. He fell down the stairs and hit his forehead on the point at the corner of this wall, this stone coping here. Because that has a more a split stellate look, like a little starburst. But then the cop said, well, wait a second. Well, what about all these shells on the floor? So we're looking around and we go back outside because it ends in an alleyway. And there are targets. Turns out this was a literal shooting gallery where kids would come and practice in this tenement. They'd stand in the hallway by the front door and shoot out through the back door into the uh, yard where they had a, a target up on the fence. So all their shell casings were on the floor. It had nothing to do with this guy. It was just a coincidence. And they were, the cops were mighty happy when I said, nah, this isn't a homicide. This is an accident. Less work for them. And have you ever been wrong? Like, have you ever seen something where it was a suicide, but you've concluded it was a, a homicide? Sure. And there's a story like that in the book. Um, the problem is I will never, ever know. It, it's a long story. And it's, you know, of a man who was found dead supposedly by suicide. But everything in me said there's something wrong here. This doesn't fit. And it was largely based on his wife and the man I thought was her, I surmised was her lover. Mm. There was something about the chemistry between the two of them. It was electric. And it was a weird story. You know, why, why should he be dead here? The whole, nothing, nothing about the story made sense. However, it was a suicide, plain and simple based on the autopsy and the evidence at hand. Anything else that I surmised was strictly my own fantasy, my own internal storytelling. It was based on a feeling I had. And you can't convict people based on a feeling you have. You have to, in an investigation, write and demonstrate only the evidence only the evidence that you see and can record. You don't put your own stories in, your own fantasies, or I think this one killed that one. That's not, that's not our job. Our job is to present evidence and determine a cause of death and a manner of death. The manner being homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or act of war. That's a whole manner of death unto itself. So yeah, there were, there were quite a few cases where I might have thought something else happened. No way I could prove it. And then, and you were also involved in in helping identify victims of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Like, given what a an emotional shock that was, obviously to that area, and then to the city, and then to the country. I remember at that time there were a couple of hotels set aside where parents and family of victims were there and there was pictures up all over the place. And, um, 
because uh, I actually lived like a block away. So I had to stay mm. in one of those hotels. So I saw uh-huh. everything that was going on. And everybody was just in obviously so much pain and anguish. What What was that like? What was that experience like? It was horrible. It ruined everything. It really did. It, it ruined everything. Um, it, it damn near destroyed our city, our economy, our... But, and all those people, all those innocent people, just everything from stockbrokers with a cup of coffee saying hi to their staff in the morning or the busboy cleaning up at Windows in the World, or the janitor, just regular folks going about their day. And suddenly they're at the center of the greatest mass murder in U.S. history. And why did it ruin everything for me personally? Because my job was always interesting, always fun, you know, often emotionally devastating, but still I had a good time. I loved working with cops. I loved figuring out puzzles and I loved seeing how people lived. Going into someone's home when they die, you have carte blanche to see what their lives are like. And it's interesting. Yeah. Along comes 9-11. There's really nothing to investigate. We know what happened. We know where it happened. We know who did it. We know why. The only thing we don't know is who are the victims. So the whole investigation centered around identifying the people who had been killed. And there's nothing fun about that. There's nothing interesting about that. It's just sad, sad, sad every day. And it's so overwhelming because there are more than 20,000 pieces representing fewer than 3,000 people. So it was not an, you know, the job, if, if it was enjoyable before, it certainly wasn't now. And then I, you know, the family's coming in every day to our office to give us uh, hair samples or toothbrush samples for DNA or just to talk to us to see um, anything yet. Have you found him? Do you have any idea where he was located? Being faced with that kind of grief is absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. It's, there's no way to process that or to, you know, go out and have a good time afterwards. That was bad, bad, bad. Yeah. I mean, how many people do you think you identified? Um, I, I think, mean, because again, things were scattered everywhere. Yeah, I think it's it's close to 60% of the victims have been identified. And that's mm-hmm. after, what is it, 22 years now, almost 22 years. Wow. And it took that long, which just goes to show you the enormous forces, the devastating uh, nature of that attack. You know, the, the fireball, the crash of the airplanes, the collapse of the building, all those things. Many people, I believe, were literally vaporized. There's nothing left. Nothing. So they never will be identified. And what about, I mean, w- there was also the people who jumped, I guess, because it was so hot at the top that they felt that this was a better end for them mm. than than waiting for it to happen. Now, this is one of those cases where I think words really matter. Did they really jump? Because jump implies suicide. And I think those people wanted to live. I don't think any of them wanted to die. So did they jump or were they pushed out by flame and smoke? I choose the latter. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I agree with you. 
Yeah, no, nobody said, oh, I'm going to jump because this will be a better death. I think they were hanging on to window frames that were broken out, and behind them, flames were licking their backs, or the smoke was, the heat was absolutely over, just so intense. And the pain was so intense. They just went. Yeah. So they and were murdered, not not suicide, murdered. Yeah, no, I agree. Suicide's, suicide's definitely the wrong word. And... It's just it's just a horrible day all around. Yeah, yeah, it was. So there wasn't anything good yeah. that happened. And of but, course, it, it changed our whole um, notion of ourselves um, in, in in terms of our safety and security. You know, now you can't even get on an airplane without having your water bottle confiscated and your your face lotion and take off your shoes. And I mean, you know, everything's yeah. changed. And now. Would you recommend this as a job for somebody? <laughs> a good career path? Oh, yes. Yes, I would. However, however, with the very, very strong caveat that they get therapy, that they participate in um, debriefing sessions, uh, that they work with their colleagues to um, express their feelings. Uh, back in my day, that was very much discouraged. I remember asking my boss, who I worshipped, he was my mentor, and I said, Doc, you know, we're, a lot of us are getting kind of a little hinky. There's a lot of drinking, a lot of affairs, gambling, you know. People are really affected by this stuff. He said, no, Barbara, we're strong people. We do this work because we can. We are the strongest of the strong. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, uh, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm strong. But no, that's not the way of it. I think only now, in the, in the past year or two, have people begun, in the business, have people begun to realize just how bad the emotional effect is of this kind of work, be it, you know, police officers, firemen, emergency room personnel, and most of all, uh, medical, medical legal death investigators. Uh, it's it's uh, devastating work. So you like among it, your colleagues, is, has there been anyone, I mean, obviously this is the case, but What's an example of someone who really couldn't handle it ultimately? Sure. One of the guys I first worked with, um, you know, he started using drugs. Uh, he told everybody he had narcolepsy, but he didn't. He was just stoned. And he fell off a chair at a, at a victim's house once while interviewing the family. He's just passed out. And um, so he was fired. Um, after three tries, they sent him to rehab two or three times. And on the third time, he just he didn't take, so they um, they let him go. And uh, he wound up hanging himself. Mm. Um, he did get sober for a brief time, but it didn't stay. It's a damn Gosh. shame. What a nice guy. Vietnam and vet. You, and so a Vietnam vet, he's certainly seen his share of tragedy. Yeah. But this was too much. Yeah, I think he already had PTSD, and then you put this on top of it. Um, some of my colleagues became heavy drinkers. Some got sober, some didn't. And some and just quit. They said, uh, I remember one very lovely young woman, just a, a pretty, fun, vivacious, lovely girl. Uh, I think her name was Nicole. She did it for a while, and she was good at the work. And then she said, what the hell am I doing to myself? I belong in the world of art. She went into styling and makeup and hairdressing, you know? That's, well, I guess, I don't know if you want to say makeup's related because you're not, it's not like you're the, 
you know, person who dresses uh-huh. them up for a funeral. The mortician, right? No, yeah, I never. The mortician, uh, yeah. No, that's a that's a interesting job, but no, not for us. No. And what are some of the ridiculous things you've seen in movies? Uh, you know, speaking of that, like obviously there's a lot of forensics done in movies and in police, you know, investigation TV shows. And then there was that show Six Feet Under, hmm. which was all about you know morticians. Yeah. So. Wh- what, what, where, do you, are you ever watching like these shows with friends and you say, that's bullshit. Like it never happens <laughs> yeah. that way. Always, always. I'm very annoying to watch true crime with. Um, I'm always yelling, what the, he missed the whole point. This blood spray on the wall. What the hell? Or uh, the, I guess the worst offenders are the, are the police procedurals, you know, the CSI yeah. and CIS, all that. They depend very much on, on technology and bright lights and hard driving music and, um, young scientists, uh, criminologists who wear a four-inch heel to work and a miniskirt. It just doesn't, you know, it's not like that. You didn't wear a four-inch heel and miniskirt to, Sometimes, to work? Sometimes, occasionally. I, when I was on call and I'd be out at a club or a party and they'd call me in for a case and I'd show up in a black dress and heels and the cops were like, wow, holy shit. You know, <laughs> she really knows how to do it. Um, but that, that, that was rare. Um, you know, what they do is the first thing they do is they compress the timeline. They get DNA results within 15 minutes. They get genetic genealogy in, in seven minutes. Uh, that, that's of course the most obvious thing. And that's okay. Cause you got 42 minutes to tell a story. So what the hell go ahead and compress everything. But what is annoying is when they out and out put in something that is so odd for instance, I saw one, I, I, I just started watching them because I'm writing an article, an essay on this right now called What TV Gets Wrong. And I can't wait to read that. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a fun story. And, you know, everything in the show is exaggerated, but that was okay. I was enjoying it. I was having a good time until the very end. A decedent is laying on the autopsy table and the director of the CSI unit comes in, stands over her, pets her head and her face of the dead woman and bends down and kisses her forehead. I was like, what the fuck? Never, never, never have I kissed a victim. Never, never, never. Could you imagine it possible at all? No, not unless, (laughs) no, no, absolutely not. The most I ever did Sometimes when I was feeling particularly spiritual or religious, I'd make a little sign of the cross over the head or sometime a little Jewish star at the person. Was, I'd just make like a little motion over their head and say to myself, go in peace, rest in peace. You know, so and, saying goodbye to them. But I would never kiss them. Jesus. And let me ask you, in your investigating, you obviously have to like cut people open and see what happened. What's like the most unusual thing you have found inside somebody? <laughs> or at least even like a physiological thing, like a strange biology. Um, oh, you know, this wasn't my case, but it, it was at uh, one of the, you know, you have a conference each week to go over your cases. And one of the medical examiners brought in one, um, a guy who worked as a baker um, in some, you know, like Entenmann's or Silver Cup, one of the local places. And when they cut him open, and he had been shot, you know, so 
no big surprise there what his cause of death was. But when they cut him open, they found that he was infested with worms, tons of worms. But then they showed us the worst part. In the bakery where he worked, he didn't have gloves. He'd put his hands into the dough. His job was to knead and stretch the dough that we were eating in our bread. And he was filled with worms. That was awful. First off, how do you get filled with worms? Well, you know, you catch a worm from eating something or from, I mean, like kids get worms because they, well, I hate to be vulgar and graphic, but, you know, they pick at their noses where occasionally there are worms and then it goes through the digestive system and out through their little rectums and they itch and they scratch it and then it makes eggs and they touch another kid. So it it spreads among children very easily. But uh, if you go to certain tropical countries, you get worms in almost everything. Their eggs are everywhere. And, you know, people get used to it. You can you can have a symbiotic relationship with your worms, actually. Oh, um, my God. They can live there forever and never bother you. But it certainly bothered us, us to see all those worms inside them. Jesus. Ugh, that's... I don't. I don't know. I honestly don't know how you could do how you could do it. I admire you for doing it <laughs> because it's obviously a function we need to to have in society. When when did forensic investigators start? Like it used to be, people would just kill people, mm-hmm. and then oh, this person was dead. He was obviously killed with a sword, and you would know. Um, actually, it started for the reason of money. Coroner. The the term coroner relates to the crown. So in England, back in, I guess, as early as 1200, 1300, around there, when a person died, the king who owned the land or the duke needed someone to investigate that death and see if the person had any assets, any money or property, which would rightfully now belong to the crown. And so the name coroner, as in crown. And so they would investigate the deaths and that became a profession. But at first it was only about the money. It was only till, it it wasn't until later on, some 100 or 200 years, that it became about uh, justice. As as the justice system grew, it became necessary to find out how a person died and who did it. So sheriffs and coroners worked together in ancient England to find out how a person died so that they could have trials. Now, is there, is there ever a time when you just can't tell how someone died? Like they didn't, as far as you could see, and as far as the doctors could see, you can't, they didn't die from disease or a tumor. Like, is there some drug that's, that's hidden in the blood that they take or, or, or what? Um, yeah, there is a, a, a category of manners of death called undetermined. And that is when you literally cannot find any reason for their death. You can't see what killed them, and you can't see why or how they died. Um, so you might, somebody might, um, you know, smell something in the na- in their building and say, Ugh, somebody's dead in there. Call the police. Please come in and find the person laying on the floor. Let's say 45 years old, young, healthy, and they're just dead. So on autopsy, you don't see anything. No disease process, no myocardial infarction, no heart attack. The brain looks okay. 
Who knows? So in those cases, it may be as simple as a cardiac arrhythmia. You know, the electrical pulses that cause the heart to beat with regularity. Maybe there was an interruption in that electrical flow and they just died. Um, Maybe they did eat something poisonous. But we do toxicology on everybody. You test the eye fluids, the blood. Maybe they might have been allergic to something that the allergy didn't stick around. It just killed them. Possible, but then you might see the signs of anaphylactic reaction, like swollen lips, the um, the airway being swollen shut, um, redness, and, you know, things like that. Yeah, it's happened several times. Uh, you know, the last one I remember was um, a mummy. Um, and I think I mentioned him in the book. He was a complete mummy. There was nothing but the skin and bones, and his insides had all been eaten away by rats. So he mummified in this dry building where he uh, lived. It was a squat, an abandoned building. And there was a bullet rattling around in his chest, in his hollow chest. And I said, geez, look at that. The cop said, oh, I guess somebody shot him. No, not at all. How would we know if that was an old war wound, if he accidentally shot himself once? or if somebody shot him now or he committed suicide or he had an accident. We have no way of knowing. All we know is there's- Was there a, a bullet hole in his, in his skin? No, there was, the skin was so degraded. I mean, it was just, mm. it was like, um, he looked like a pile of autumn leaves. Mm. It was not a nice analogy. Very poetic. Yes, yes. very poetic. <laughs> you know, when I took his arm to turn, try and turn him over, the arm just came off in my hand. Ugh. It was just le- like, like brown leaves. Of, of parchment-like skin. And uh, it was very strange to look at. Why I always remember him is he had a brand new pair of Timberland boots on his feet. And the boots looked great, but they were just skeleton feet in them. And just this skeleton covered in in parchment-like skin. So What happens to those boots? Do they get sold like in a <laughs> used clothing store? Oh. Uh Gee, I don't know. I mean, we, we bring them into the medical examiner's office uh, in their clothing, and uh, they put the clothing in a bag. So if there's any ever any family that shows up, we give them as their possessions. Um, and I, you know, I had this vague memory of those boots going missing, and I said to this medical student, "Did you steal those boots?" So, no, no, no. I wouldn't take a dead man's boots, but I was just busting his chops, you know. Well. Uh, thank you for what you do. Thank you for your service. <laughs> if I'm ever killed, I hope you're the medical examiner. Yeah. So You know, I do, I joke a lot, but the truth is it's a very rewarding job in terms of not just getting justice because that's so important, but getting answers for the families of the victims. Yeah. Um, we serve the family. So it was a, it was a good rewarding job in that sense. Well, it's such a fascinating book. Again, story after story. And this is really, people People are concerned with life and they're concerned with death. Mm-hmm. And this book is half of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so great book, really riveting. I mean, they should make a movie out of your life, which they probably will. You're probably going to get uh, sell the, the rights to this book to some movie studio. I have. And, yeah. oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> I have. I hope it was very lucrative and I hope they make the movie. Oh, uh, you know uh, how Hollywood is. It's a mess. But yeah, I think- Who, the, who, who should play you? Um, oh, you know, I wish Edie, it should be me at the age of about 40. 
And I, I wish the hell Edie Falco could play it, but I guess that's, that wouldn't work out. I don't know. Edie Falco, I don't know. She seems um, not tough enough. I, mm -hmm. I kind of see like a 40-year-old Jodie Foster. Yeah, yeah, that could work. That could definitely work. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. Barbara Butcher, author of What the Dead Know, Learning About Life as a New York City Death Investigator. Just a riveting, you could tell through some of the stories Barbara's already told us, just a riveting book. Thank you again. And I hope you don't see any more ghosts because that sounded pretty scary. <laughs> that sounded scarier than some of your investigations. It was. Thank you so much, James. And stay safe. Be careful. I will. I'll try. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.